Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zazan. On August 10th, Hamid Nouri, a former prosecutor in Iran, went on trial in Sweden for his alleged role in the executions of thousands of political prisoners in Iran in 1988. According to the indictment brought by Swedish public prosecutors, Nuri is accused as part of the systemic execution of thousands of political prisoners in the summer of 1988. The historic trial against Nuri will hear testimonies from dozens of witnesses and it will be the first time that one of the worst crimes of the past 40 years in Iran will be examined in a court of law. In July of 1988, the Islamic Republic of Iran agreed to bring an end to the brutal eight-year war with Iraq. Over the next two months, under the orders of Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khomeini, political prisoners around the country were secretly brought before a tribunal panel that would later become known as the Death Commission. They were not told what was happening and did not know that one wrong answer concerning their faith or political affiliation would send them straight to the gallows. Thousands of men and women were condemned to death and many buried in mass graves in Khabaron Cemetery in the vicinity of Tehran. Through eyewitness accounts of survivors, research by scholars, and memories of children and spouses of the deceased, the new book Voices of a Massacre reconstruct the events of that bloody summer. Over 30 years later, the Iranian government has not officially acknowledged that they ever took place. In the foreword to the Voices of a Massacre, Professor Angelo Davis writes, there may be those who argue that these events took place long ago and that there is little to be done today. But the fact that it has been more than 30 years since this atrocity took place is an even more compelling reason why an international solidarity movement is needed to support the demand to render the Islamic Republic of Iran accountable for past as well as ongoing acts of repression. I spoke with Nasser Muhajir, prominent Iranian scholar and the author of Voices of a Massacre, about the 1988 executions of Iranian political prisoners and the significance of Hamid Nouri's trial in Sweden. Hamid Nouri is in his early 60s. Little is known about his background, but it is certain that he was an assistant the deputy prosecutor in the Gohardash prison during the great massacre of political prisoners in July, August 1988. As we know, in that massacre, some 5,000 political prisoners were perished in the prisons of Islamic Republic of Iran throughout the country. Uh, many survivors of the massacre have witnessed that he played an active role in questioning the prisoners before the massacre started escorting the listed prisoners from their cells, blindfolded down a dark hallway to a room where the commission of death, and I talk about the commission of death later on, this is a committee whose members were selected by Ayatollah Khomeini, a four-member committee, one of the members of which was Mr. Raisi, 
the actual president of the Islamic Republic of Iran. In a recent article by Mr. Donesh, a well-known political prisoner in the 80s, we read that uh, Nouri was also engaged in uh, making trumped-up charges against political prisoners. Donish talks about a uh, long dialogue with him in his office in Gohardasht prison. And Gohardasht is one of the two prisons of Tehran. I mean, Gohardasht is actually in the vicinity of Tehran. But, you know, the massacre of political prisoners started first in Evin and then in Gohardasht. Donish talks about the discussion that uh, he had with him in his office and explains very clearly how the conversation was totally distorted when it turned into a report that was delivered by Nuri to the commission to interrogate political prisoners and decide who should be killed. This demonstrates another aspect of his active role in preparing the list of prisoners who were to be executed in that purge. Nuri was arrested on a visit to Syria in November 2019. That is almost two years ago. Lawyers determined that he could be persecuted in the Scandinavian country under the principle of universal jurisdiction, which allows certain types of international crime to be addressed in foreign states no matter where or how long ago they took place. Nuri is being prosecuted for war crimes and murder. The war crimes is related to the military excursion of the Mujahideen Khalq right before the executions or the verdict, the edict, the fatwa issued by Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini, and uh, he's also being persecuted by murder. First, the Mujahideen prisoners killed in that massacre, and second came the left wing prisoners who were executed. For them, for the left-wing prisoners, which there is no fatwa as of now. I should say no known fatwa as of now by Ayatollah Khomeini. The Swedish court and prosecutors decided that uh, this second wave of uh, massacre should be called murder according to the, the legal language. Dozens of victims, witnesses, and experts are expected to take part in this court. Your book, Voices of a Massacre, Untold Stories of Life and Death in Iran, 1988, provides a comprehensive record of state violence and its astounding impacts. To begin with, can you briefly tell us what happened in 1988? Unlike any other atrocities in Iran, by the Iranian regime, this one was kept secret. In a nutshell, what happened was in the months of July and August 1988, a few months after the Iranian uh, government, at the time Ayatollah Khamenei, now the supreme leader of Iran, then the president of the Islamic Republic, accepted the UN Resolution 598, effectively bringing ceasefire in the eight-year-old war between Iran and Iraq. And a few days after the ceasefire, after Khamenei, the then-president, 
announced that the Islamic Republic of Iran is prepared to accept the resolution. Ayatollah Khomeini gave a speech, and in this speech, he compared the acceptance of the ceasefire as drinking from a chalice of poison. He made this comparison because for eight years, the Iranian government went against all calls for ceasefire and the stoppage of the war with Iraq. And they were saying that we are going to invade Iraq. And the invasion of Iraq means the beginning of exportation of the Iranian revolution, the Islamic revolution in Iran to the neighboring countries, to all Muslim countries. And this was to make Islamic revolution a regional phenomena and it would be the best safeguard against all the big and small satans. Uh, this, this is the term that they used at the time, you know, for uh, countries like Saudi Arabia, Emirates, the Qatar, or uh, another big satan for them, the Israeli uh, government. They thought that this is the best safeguard for them and uh, by invading uh, or exporting the Islamic revolution to other countries, uh, they can make sure that they can uh, implement their program and that is going back to the Islam of the Prophet Muhammad and the Islamic state that was created in Medina during Muhammad, the Prophet of Islam. So their utopia was a reactionary kind of a utopia and they knew that this utopia could not be materialized in this world that we are living in, you know, with all these developments after 13th century. This is, I think, to my understanding, this is why Ayatollah Khomeini compared the ceasefire by drinking the chalice of the poison. My understanding is that Ayatollah Khomeini knew that the utopia of making Islamic state as he dreamed of it, as he envisioned it, is finished after the ceasefire with Iraq. After the ceasefire with Iraq, they have to enter into all kinds of international relations and the dealings and Iraq will come out of isolation and become just a state like many other states, I mean, with its own particularities, of course, and have to go into these uh, dealings with other states. And I think that uh, probably he knew that not being able to make an Islamic Republic that they wished that he wrote of in exile would start the process of decadence of the Islamic Republic of Iran that we now witness very clearly that what is left of, you know, all those Islamic slogans is gone and we're dealing with one of the most corrupt, one of the most unprincipled regimes in the world. Right after this event, we see that the Mujahideen al they take this as a weak point of the regime. They think that the regime is in an internal crisis. And Mujahideen, just for our listeners, they were the Islamic leftist organization that was formed before the revolution. Exactly. As soon as we enter the age of modernity, in Iran, we have different interpretations of Islam, like many other countries in the world, with uh, 
the emergence of modernity, the age of reason, there are different interpretations of Christianity, Judaism, all major religions in, in the world. We had the same thing in Islam too. And then uh, what happens is that one of the groupings that tried to come up with a new interpretation of Islam, a modern interpretation of Islam, an Islam that can uh, reconcile itself with the necessities of the modern world was Mujahideen. Of course, the Mujahideen were not only thinking of Islam as a cultural phenomena or as a religion, it was they were a militant political organization and they emerged in the 60s, uh, a sort of an alternative. Soon after they came to the fore, the Iranian clergy was split into two. A very small minority started uh, supporting the Mujahideen and the vast majority of the clergy thought of the Mujahideen as hypocrites and as uh, non-Muslims and tried to fight against them. Ayatollah Khomeini was leading the current that was portraying the Mujahideen as hypocrites and as people who do not believe in uh, the fundamental principles of Islam and are trying to renovate Islam and make a new Islam that, according to the fundamentalists, was doomed to failure and deviation of a sort. And as you write in the book, the Mujahideen's really tried to synthesize Islam and Marxism. But of course, we should also mention that Mujahideen of today does not look anything like Mujahideen decades ago. Permit me to add to what you correctly said, that at the end of the book, The Voices of Massacre, because the book have references to so many different organizations whose members were imprisoned, whose members were tortured, whose members were executed. And since the name of these groups uh, appear and reappear in the book, we decided to have an appendix and introduce all these organizations to the non-Iranian reader or the English-speaking reader. And there is a short history, of course, encyclopedic, short history of the Mujahideen Khal at the end of the book. Let's continue to what happened in 1988. Most of the victims in the 1988 massacre had been imprisoned following a wave of terror unleashed against the opposition beginning in the spring of 1981. That's when the dominant bloc within the regime tried to further consolidate its power. So what happened then is that the Mujahideen Khal, who is now uh, in opposition, I'm talking about 1988, Mujahideen Khalq were one of the first victims, you know, rivals <laughs> always happened to become uh, victims. They were one of the first political organizations who were under the attack of the fundamentalists in Iran under the leadership of Ayatollah Khomeini. And in a few years' time, Ayatollah Khomeini thinks that he is strong enough to get rid of uh, the liberals uh, that he was working with and the different strands of Islam. There were all kinds of non-fundamentalist Islamic uh, tendencies that were working with the Islamic Republic of Iran. Here we're talking about 1981. 
Exactly. At the time, the president of the Republic, Bani Saad, was known uh, personality in the opposition who had the background working with the Iranian National Front during the 60s and throughout his years in exile before the Iranian Revolution. He worked closely with the Confederation of Iranian Students and left-wing and liberals and pro-democracy currents. He was kicked out of power in a palace, kind of a coup. And then during this time, he sided with the Mujahideen Khalq. And we have this period of uh, severe struggle between the, the main two forces of which were Mujahideen and the Bani Saad. And uh, on the other side, we had the Islamic regime. Okay. During this time, According to Amnesty International, some 60,000 political prisoners were uh, arrested then, and we do not exactly know how many thousands were executed at the time. As you said in the beginning, these executions were not done in a secret fashion. They would announce you know, the name of uh, those who were executed in 1982-1983, in the major newspapers of Tehran, they would publish their pictures on the front pages of the newspapers. Even if they did not know the name of a person, a political prisoner who refused to tell his or her name to the officers at prison, uh, they would uh, say that this lady was killed at this date and we want her parents to come and identify her for us. So this was not uh, carried on in a uh, secret way by no means, but uh, we know that at the time they perceived themselves as quite in a dangerous position, no stability, they didn't know what will happen tomorrow, especially, you know, the coalition that the two main forces of which were Mujahideen and Bani Saad and other groups of left and pro-democracy individuals had joined them. They made an alternative, and this alternative was being supported by many political parties of the time in Europe. So they were thinking that, you know, their days are numbered, and it's a struggle, a uh, life and death kind of a situation that they're in. So they wanted to terrorize the society and they wanted to spread fear and they wanted to tell people that, you know, if you're going to fight against us, you're going to end up uh, being uh, dead. And that for this reason, they killed many, many, many political prisoners. They were torturing political prisoners openly. This is well documented, not only by uh, human rights organizations, but by uh, people who were working with the Islamic Republic of Iran, and even uh, by the heir apparent of Ayatollah Khomeini, namely Ayatollah Hussein Ali Muntaziri, who talks about the tortures and killing of political prisoners at the time. And this happens until, say, 1983-84. And from then on, you know, we have another period in prison that they wanted to make the prisoners repent and embrace Islam. In that, they were defeated too. Even one faction of the political prisoners at the time were uh, 
political prisoners who belonged to two left-wing organizations who supported Ayatollah Khomeini and who supported the Islamic Republic of Iran and they even justified the killings and all kinds of uh, atrocities committed by the Islamic Republic of Iran against the Iranian people. I'm talking about the uh, the party of Iran and I'm talking about the organization of Iranian people's Fedai uh, Aksariyat, the majority. Uh, well, they were in prison too. They were Again, you know, having the same positions, supporting, uh, quote-unquote, the revolutionary anti-imperialist line of the Islamic Republic. But they were uh, subject to the same uh, treatment, and they had to embrace Islam, and they had to repent, and they had to say that, you know, we denounce, you know, our uh, faith, and we would become, you know, Muslims and everything. This uh, process that prison officials started in 1984 was defeated. So after the defeat of this uh, project, they decide uh, that uh, we did everything and we couldn't uh, make these people embrace Islam and uh, accept the correct line of Islam. So what happens is that there is this talk we do not have the documents uh, for making uh, analysis based on concrete evidence. But many po- political prisoners were told that they will never be released and they will uh, be perished here in prison. And also, Nasser, we should mention that many of these prisoners were young and they were arrested for merely being an activist. They were not engaged in armed struggle. They were not engaged in acts of violence. They were just resisting and opposing the Islamic Republic of Iran. Exactly. And I thank you very much for... Because it's important. Yes. Many of them, you know, were arrested because uh, they had a newspaper of this or that political organization with them, or, you know, they had a leaflet. I remember very, very clearly myself that the pastorans, the revolutionary guards, uh, would uh, roam the the streets of Tehran, and whoever they become suspicious of, uh, they think that he or she may be a pro-democracy or left-winger, they would come and arrest them. So a lot of uh, prisoners, you know, who were in prison at the time, they had committed no crime whatsoever, whatsoever. But of course, many were political too. And as I said, members of all kinds of political organizations at the time. I mean, they spared no, no one. All political organizations, non-fundamentalists, they had to be arrested. Even, you know, Muslim political organizations, even Muslim Caribs circles that would not uh, go with the whims and wishes of Ayatollah Khomeini and the Islamic Republic of Iran, they were arrested at the time. Now, after this uh, ceasefire that I uh, talked about, what happens is that the Mujahideen Khalq, they were in the opposition. They had at the time military bases in Iraq and uh, they decided that the regime is in a weak uh, kind of a situation and it's the best time for them to attack the Islamic regime. So there is this military exertion, exertion by them. 
from the western borders of Iran, they enter into Iran. From Iraq, they enter into Iran. In 48 hours, they were badly defeated. They lost hundreds of their uh, members of what they called the Iranian Liberation Army. And uh, many of them were arrested. Many of them were shot at spot. And some were taken to Tehran prison. And right after this military excursion, we have this edict, this fatwa by Ayatollah Khomeini. The fatwa doesn't have a uh, date on it, but the fatwa must be written during these days, a few days uh, after the military excursion. I'm speaking with Iranian independent scholar and author Nasser Muhajir about his new book, Voices of a Massacre, Untold Stories of Life and Death in Iran, 1988. We'll talk more after a short break. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. us now. I am Malihera Zozon and you are listening to Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. My guest this week is Iranian scholar and researcher Nasser Muhajir and I'm speaking with him about his new book Voices of a Massacre Untold Stories of Life and Death in Iran 1988. Through eyewitness accounts of survivors research by scholars and memories of children and spouses of the deceased, Voices of a Massacre reconstruct the events of that bloody summer. Over 30 years later, the Iranian government has still not officially acknowledged that they ever took place. In the book, you say even though we do not know exactly when this edict, what issues, you write that the evidence shows that the plan to purge the prisons was in the works months before the UN resolution, even though the actual executions happened a couple of months after the UN ceasefire agreement. But you say the evidence show that they planned to purge the prisons months before. Yes. What I'm trying to say is that this military excursion by the Mujahideen Khal gave them the pretext to put into practice a uh, long-planned project 
that they had to purge the prisons. And eliminate all opposition. And eliminate all opposition. They know very well that after accepting the ceasefire, they must permit the UN Human Rights Commission to Iran to inspect the situation of prisons. They know that they had to enter into all kinds of relations with the international community. They were rejecting the world and all the institutions, the existing institutions before the ceasefire. They know that with the ceasefire, they have to enter into the international community and accept the consequences of their membership. Does that mean that they also knew that they were losing this war really badly and they had to come to an agreement and they had to sign a ceasefire? So they were predicting a post-war situation for Iran. Exactly. And one of the things that they had to predict was that what happened really, you know, after the fatwa of Ayatollah Khomeini that was carried with deception, you know, people were thinking that this is a uh, amnesty kind of a commission that has come to prisons. And the prisoners had no idea whatsoever why they're being uh, taken into these uh, so-called courts. I wouldn't really call it court. To be exact, it was inquisitional tribunals. First, it was for the Mujahideen, and they were asking uh, the Mujahideen if they believed in that organization or not, if they would say that they believed in the organization or in the leadership of the organization, if they thought that the leadership of the organization, they were not traitors and everything, they would be executed. And that is why they started the executions with the Mujahideen, and thousands of the Mujahideen were executed. And then they came to the left, people and with the left people the questions were as i said you know it's uh, inquisition do you believe in god do you believe in afterlife do you believe in prophet muhammad do you believe in Quran? do you do your prayer and a negative answer to these questions that well i don't believe in god okay you have to be killed or do you believe in afterlife if you didn't believe in afterlife and said well i don't know And if you were not clever enough to say that, well, I'm thinking about this, just making up a story, you had to be hanged. I mean, that was your verdict. So what I'm trying to say is that the very reason, the very fact that political prisoners who were not Mujahid and who were leftists were killed at that instance shows that they had a plan and that they were using this situation created by uh, Mujahideen's uh, attack to Western borders of Iran to get rid of uh, political prisoners. The vast majority of these people were to be released in two, three, four years' time. And they knew that, you know, these people who were steadfast political prisoners, they didn't change their position. Even in front of these inquisitional tribunals, they didn't say that we have changed our beliefs system. They knew that, you know, if if they're released from prison in a country that for so many years, eight years, people were crying, you know, that stop this war. This war is not going to get anywhere. And uh, all their advisors, international advisors, different governments, they sent 
emissaries to Iran, discussing, you know, with the leaders of the Islamic Republic of Iran that this war would get with nowhere, and your best bet is to accept a ceasefire. But they continued and continued and continued, and they made life miserable for people, you know, with the continuation of the war. And, well, they knew that people, you know, were dissatisfied people, but they had to make, you know, certain concessions. They can no longer deny people from many things because of the war situation and scarcities because of the war and what have you. So they knew that with all these political prisoners who were uh, thinking uh, and believing they had the same belief system coming out in a country that the vast majority of people did not want the Islamic Republic of Iran, they would be in trouble. So let's get rid of these troublemakers and save ourselves from the coming trouble. That is my analysis in a nutshell. The massacres began in the notorious Evin prison on July 28th in Gohardash prison near Tehran on July 30th. It went on until August 15th, with short interruptions, you're right. It recommenced in Evin on August 28th, and there are no records of how many were killed, according to Amnesty International. And as you said, we could be talking about 5,000 people. What explains the secrecy? Why was this done in secret? That's the first question. The second thing is, why didn't they just keep these people locked up? Because some of these people, as you said, they were given long sentences, but they were re-interrogated in 1988. As your first question, they could not justify the massacre. That was the beginning of them entering the international community and accepting sort of the international norms on what basis could they say that this person was sentenced 10 years ago in 1981 this person or 1982 this person was sentenced at uh, 10 years and we are now in 1988 and uh, we retried the guy or the woman and we decided to kill him why because he said that I don't believe in afterlife. I mean, it was impossible for them to justify this massacre in uh, any court of law, in any conventional kind of uh, existing institution. So that is, I think, one very important reason that they knew that they had no justification whatsoever to do this. Second of all, They did not really need to make people angry when they were announcing the killings uh, 10 years before then, in the beginning of the 1980s. They wanted to create an atmosphere of terror in the society. They wanted to convey a strong message to the people that, listen, you don't enter the political scene. You enter the political scene, you will be killed. You will have no way to live your life any longer. Of course, this happened with uh, great purges in the institutions of the country. So many, so many non-Islamic teachers, university professors, government officials, uh, what have you, were, you know, kicked out 
they try to make the bureaucracy completely made of uh, ideologically loyal people. Exactly, ideologically loyal people. At that time, in 1988, they didn't need these problems. They just wanted to portray a different uh, picture of themselves. And uh, they wanted to say that now we have accepted you. And before then, for example, music was out loud, exactly like Taliban. After then, you know, step by step, uh, they accepted the music, of course, a certain sort of music. At one time, it was enough for you to carry a tar, the music instrument in the street, and then get arrested. But then, you know, after 1988, music was accepted, music classes was accepted. Of course, women were not permitted to sing. To this day, they are not permitted to sing in radio, television. Playing chess was uh, illegal before 1988. But Ayatollah Khomeini made certain fatwas, playing chess legal and uh, stuff like this. So at the time, they had to give a different kind of a picture of themselves to the Iranian public and saying that we are going to make life a little more easier for you. If they would uh, announce the killings, uh, they would enrage the society. They, nobody would understand what is going on. Why these people who had nothing to do with the war, Mujahideen, excursion, why they had to be killed. Uh, so this is the second reason. Uh, another thing that, that uh, it is very interesting for me, I was reading uh, an article in the New York Times yesterday. It was saying that the representative of World Health Organization was in Iran and the Iranian doctors who were to talk to him were advised by the Iranian government that you should tell the representative of World Health Organizations that we have no problem with vaccines. <laughs> we have enough supply of vaccines. I'm sure you have read this article. The head of COVID task force in Iran said that they had been lying to people all along. Exactly. Only 3% of the Iranian population of 85 million people are vaccinated. Official figure says that 600 people die a day. Every day, yes. Every day. And 1,000 people are infected every day. The okay. morgues are full, the cemeteries are full, the hospitals exactly. are full. Exactly. People are even afraid exactly. going to the hospitals. So this is the mode of operandia of the Islamic Republic of Iran, to hide the truth from the world. This is an Islamic government that talks about ethics and about being right, being truthful. Now, what happened was that in 1988, a few months after the massacre, a commission from the UN comes to Iran. They are to visit the women wards. What happens is that there are so many leftist women who are still in prison. They were not uh, released from prison and they were not... Uh, killed because at the time they decided to torture the women five times a day for each prayer time. And we do not know exactly how many women were killed under torture. We do not know exactly how many people lost their sanity after five sessions of torture daily in order to accept that we're becoming Islamic. Okay, this is a torture that and the practice that the Iranian uh, political prisoners, leftists or non-Islamists, 
were to face. Mr. Galindopoul, the UN Special Representative of Human Rights Commission, is coming to Iran to visit political prisoners and see what happens there. With the men's world, they had very few people in prison. The vast majority of the men were killed and who were left, they released them, asking them to sign uh, sheets and make uh, allegiance with among Khomeini. This was not the case with women. So what happens is that they decide <laughs> to make walls inside prisons, women's wards, and make the walls and restructure, redecorate completely the women's section so nobody would understand that in these rooms are women. And when I was reading this article in the New York Times that they were telling the World Health Organization that we do not have any problems. <laughs> and Ayatollah Khamenei took a position a few months ago that vaccines that are made in the U.S. and England should not enter Iran because this is to contaminate the Iranian population. And then uh, this is the situation we now have in Iran. But this situation must be hidden from the eyes of the world. And I see a similarity between what happened then and what happens in their day-to-day practice in terms of lying, in terms of distorting the truth, in terms of doing things in secrecy, in terms of not telling people what is going on. And the high price that ordinary Iranians have paid for all the lies. In the book, you have a lot of testimonies from prisoners, those who survived, write about what went on inside those prisons, how they found out. Execution was undoubtedly the punishment for the prisoners who were steadfast in their opposition to the Islamic Republic of Iran. However, before the execution, they were allowed to write their last testaments. One prisoner wrote, in the afternoon, one of the guys who had been checking the ward in front of ours realized that someone was tapping a message by Morse code through the window of one of the cells. It was a brief and clear message. In the unjust court, the amnesty commission of the regime has convicted me to death and I will be executed in a few minutes. They brought me here to write my last testament. How did prisoners find out what was going on and they could be executed? And we should also mention that this did not happen just in Evin and Gohardash. It went on in other prisoners in Iran, in Shiraz, in Mashhad and other cities. Well, it's important to note that in the beginning, nobody knew what was going on. As I said, for the first few days, people were under the impression that this commission is there uh, to, it's an amnesty commission. Later on, they understood that, no, this commission is there in order to have these interrogations and these uh, inquisition tribunals. But after a few days, people understood. And little by little, it became clear that this commission is there to kill people. And little by little, people uh, see that, uh, saw that in their cell, say 200 people were living in the world. In a few days' time, you know, they would say that 150 people are absent. So little by little, they understood that something bad is happening. And they also heard news through the channels that political prisoners have all over the world. And 
again, the story of, for example, some of these political prisoners, they really made big sacrifices, great sacrifices, to let other people know that this commission is uh, to try you, and uh, these are the questions that are going to ask. Just know in advance what is going on and make your decision in terms of how you want to answer these questions. Because in the beginning, people, what they didn't know, they acted differently in terms of you know, answering the questions of the commission. There is a very important testimony in this book, Voices of Massacre, by one of those prisoners who has explained in detail how they uh, tried to diffuse, how they tried to let other prisoners know what is going on. The story that I said about Mr. Galin Lupol and what they did with the women's uh, ward, there is an article explaining in detail by Lalia Mastur uh, under the name of Ronaldo Galindopol's inspection of Evin Prison. And she explains in detail what they did in order to hide the fact that there are women political prisoners right now in the Islamic jails. So but going back to your question, in the beginning, we have two phases, I would say. One phase is that the phase that it's total darkness. There's another phase that to certain degree, in certain jails, people know that the commission is here to decide who must be killed and who must not be killed. And they know to different degrees what questions they are to confront and answer. The death commission was really truly bipartisan. It included Ibrahim Raisi, deputy prosecutor at that time, and now president of Iran, and Mustafa Pur Mohammadi, who was then the intelligence ministry representative in Evin prison and later became minister of justice in President Hassan Rouhani's administration. So can you talk a little bit about the composition of this death commission? Who did make the decision for these prisoners to be executed? The four people who were to make the final decisions was the religious judge, then it was the prosecutor general of Tehran, and then a representative of the Ministry of Information. The religious judge was Nayeri, and his name is specifically mentioned in the fatwa of Ayatollah Khomeini. Also, the name of Eshraqi is mentioned in the fatwa of Ayatollah Khomeini as the prosecutor general of Tehran. Uh, Ayatollah Khomeini in the fatwa also says that a member of the Ministry of Information should be there too. He doesn't name anyone. But who is there is, as you said, Kumamadi. Raisi, to this day, we do not know exactly how did he end up in this committee as a major character. His name is not in the fatwa, and maybe one of the reasons, this is an open question, we still do not have any source whatsoever to explain to us how did this guy ended up in this committee and became a member of the committee, and not only a member of the committee, a very active member of the committee. One reason may, may be that one reason, and it may not be a major reason, but we know that Ishraqi was not as active as other members of the committee were. We know that the two most active members of the committee were Nayeri and Raisi, the religious judge and Raisi, who was the deputy of the prosecutor of Tehran. 
He played a very important role, a very major role. He was the guy that always with Nayeri would go from this jail to another jail. They would take the helicopters going to different cities near Tehran, would take plane to go to different provinces and make decisions. The decisions that we make was based on two things. First, their direct interview with uh, political prisoners. Second, these interviews was always based on the file that they had at their hands. God knows if they ever read these files before going to the tribunal or they would just take a look at it real quick before the inquisition or what have you. But what we know is that they had these files and the files said who these prisoners were and what they did. In fact, your first question about Hamid Nuri, he was one of those people who would make these files, would make reports about political prisoners. And we know that in one case, as I said, the case of Danish, Everything that he said about this person was lie. So they had these files in front of them based on the files that they had and based on the questions that would directly pose, they would make their decision and they didn't have to have anyone to okay their decision or not. Ayatollah Khomeini, in fact, makes a statement that it is in- very interesting for you to know. We have published it in the book, the fatwa, and we have translated the fatwa in the book, and I read it for you. In the name of God, in all cases mentioned above, if anybody at any stage insists on hypocritical position, and this is about the Mujahideen, the hypocrites, religious term, they are to be condemned to death, liquidate the enemies of Islam, rapidly regarding the method of reviewing the cases whichever is faster should be considered so you can see the justice of the islamic republic in these four lines that i read to you from ayatollah khomeini in late july of 1988 prison authorities removed all televisions radios and newspapers from the wards suspended all family visits to prisons across Iran. So these families, the families of those political prisoners were left in the dark. How did they find out that their loved ones were executed? Very, very good question. Well, the families, well, they had their weekly visiting hours. This week they go, they said that there is construction in the jail, in this jail or in that ward. We cannot let you in. Next week they go, they hear the same thing. Next week they go, they hear the same thing. Fourth week they say that we cannot let you in. We will let you know later on. And this is in an atmosphere that in the Friday prayers, they're talking about killing the hypocrites, killing the enemies of Islam, killing the collaborators of Saddam Hussein, and getting rid of all these atheists and apostates and what have you. So after a few times of going to prisons and not hearing anything and not being able to see their loved ones, not being able to give them food, money, the things that families you know, usually take for their loved ones in prison, after a while they become suspicious that something is going on. And then always there is something that is leaking and coming out. So they understood that something is going wrong. And they decide to contact people in exile, people, their families 
abroad, and there has been a very active kind of relationship between the Iranians uh, inside and the Iranians outside. So the news comes out and people become worried, they contact different human rights organizations, newspapers, uh, and the most important credit must be given to the families of political prisoners, to what we call the movement of Madaran Khabaran, which is uh, more or less like the movement of the Mothers of Mayo in Argentina, who were quite active, unbelievable bravery in terms of going from this ministry to another ministry, pursuing the subject, going to Ayatollah Montaziris, Abbott asking him what is going on, what is going on inside prisons. We haven't been able to see our loved ones for weeks, and uh, we are suspicious uh, we do not know what is going on and what we hear on the TV and radio and Friday prayer. The atmosphere is tense. So little by little, people in exile, they contact Amnesty International, the Human Rights Watch, the UN Human Rights Committee, newspapers. And uh, again, after the killings are, are finished, then uh, we hear more news from prisoners who are writing the name of their cellmates who are absent. They knew that they were killed in this massacre. So the names come out. And I think that it is in November or December that the first list of some 2,000 names come out, out, out that we know that these people were killed. Also, it's important to note that Ayatollah Muntaziri, when he hears this in a discussion that he had with Nayeri and Ishraqi, he tells them that I have heard that, you know, some 4,000 people have been killed. He makes this a statement that this is one of the most serious crimes committed by the Islamic Republic of Iran against innocent people. Nasser Muhajir is an independent scholar of modern Iranian history. He has authored many books and written numerous articles on contemporary Iran, including on the prison systems of both the Pahlavi dynasty and the Islamic Republic, women's movements for equal rights, and histories of the Iranian left. Please join me next week for the second part of my conversation with Nasser Muhajir. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North
And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. Our media partner is a Status Hour podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And thank you for listening. just a little bit and I would take the word peace because I think we all have a very wrong and confused notion of what peace means. Peace at this stage, probably all you and I have ever known of peace is nothing to do really with peace but rather a waiting time between wars or a time for us when no bombs are dropping on our heads. But peace is not something static. Peace is not something that we will arrive at someday, I don't think. I think that peace is a way we have to act, a way we have to arrange our lives to effect change. Storytelling for social change on KPFA. Due to COVID-19, the Black Women's Blues Festival has moved outside to Civic Center Park in Berkeley, located at 2151 Martin Luther King Jr. Way. KPFA will broadcast the event live on Sunday, August 22nd from 2 p.m. to 6 p.m. featuring KPFA's own Avacha, Faye Carroll, Lady Bianca, a special presentation honoring the legendary Sugar Pie De Santo, and more. It's all happening outside at Civic Center Park in Berkeley. Tickets available at eventbrite.com. You're listening.
listening to 94.1 FM KPFA and KPFB 89.3 FM in Berkeley, KFCF 88.1 FM in Fresno, and K24 8BR 97.5 FM in Santa Cruz, and online all the time at kpfa.org. Coming up next, it's going down. But first, the news.